You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tania Ramos. I'm one of the clinical nurse educators in the Royal Children's Hospital Education Outreach Program and a clinical nurse specialist in PACU. Joining me today are Beck Marshall and Claire De Simone, who are the clinical nurse consultants for our ENT department. In the outreach service, we often deliver education about managing patients who have undergone tonsillatenoidectomies, and we often get actually many questions on what we should be teaching parents and families and their children about the care at home. So I'm super excited to be doing this podcast today. Today, Beck and Claire are going to join me to discuss the importance of family and child education and actually how this leads to decrease admission rates and improve outcomes. So super happy that you both joined me again. Thanks, Tan. Thanks for having us. Amazing. So in our previous podcast, actually, that I did with Beck, we discussed that actually having your tonsils and adenoids removed can actually be a big burden on the family in terms of um, the care that the child requires at home in terms of pain management. And I just want you to take us through this, Beck. Tonsillectomy creates an open wound. So there's no other surgery that they remove something and just leave it open. So there's bare muscle there. So there's going to be pain. And I think being really open and honest with the families about this can set really good expectations for the family. They create an open wound. There's a muscle that needs to move because you need to talk, eat, swallow, all those things. You can't put a dressing on it and um, you can't rest the area. Uh, So you think about breaking a bone and mm-hmm. the surgeon puts um, a plaster on and says, don't use it for six weeks. So they let it rest, let it recover. We just can't do that. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, impossible. An analogy that Eric Levi, I just listened to a podcast of his that he said was, if you fell over, scraped your leg, and then you pour saliva on it and food, it's going to be painful. So think <laughs> of it that so way. True. It's a That's good analogy. true. And on top of that, we're actually doing this surgery on children yeah. and getting children to stay still and not move and cooperate. It can be most difficult at the best of times. Yeah, they're going to cry. They're going to scream because it's sore and it's kind of that catch train too. And then there's a point where pain will get worse before it gets better and letting the families know that, um, again, sets that real clear expectation that nothing's gone wrong. This is very standard um, way of recovering. And that's just where new nerves enter the wound site and um, right. it becomes super sensitive. There's a plexus of nerves, so injecting one area, it's difficult to block the whole area. And then also these children are mouth breathers and they'll continue to be mouth breathers for a period and it dries out the area, it dries out the wound and it just becomes it's really just one, sore. one kind of thing yeah. after the other. It's a painful procedure. Yeah. We need and, to say that. <laughs> and I think that's so important because often families may underestimate how painful this actually is and they might have kind of like a pre-incorrect preconceived idea mm. that it's kind of be you know going to be like oh you'll be in pain for a day or two and then everything's going to be okay yep. and we know that that's not the case. It's a solid two-week recovery yeah. and it's rough there's going to be days that you know they're going to struggle to eat and drink and sleep and all those things pain relief is huge that we'll talk about soon and it's just so important to let them know that mm. pain is going to happen. And that leads on to the next question, which is for you, Claire. So, you know, obviously pain's a, a big issue, but why is it so important to educate, I guess, the child if they're at, at age that they can understand and their family on pain management and also the importance of eating and drinking? Because, you know, I've got kids and if they've got a ouchie, they're going to not want to be doing things that 
is going to cause kind of an irritation to that particular area. Now, if you've had your adenoids and tonsils removed, particularly your tonsils, you're not going to be inclined to want to eat or drink. Yeah, of course. So the biggest point around education is one, we want to set those expectations from the get-go very Mm -hmm. clear to the family because we have this preconception that a tonsillectomy procedure is so common and it's you know, it's a minor procedure. That's the mm-hmm. way people look at it. In actual fact, yes, it, it's performed very regularly, but no one really talks about the recovery afterwards. Yeah. And it comes with its own risks and obviously Absolutely. discomfort. So it is important to inform families about that. We definitely want to be talking to these families because I think putting in education at the very beginning helps us reduce those readmission rates yeah. um, and the patients have better outcomes. To I guess heal from this surgery, Mm -hmm. a child needs to keep eating and drinking. That's what's going to make that healing keep happening. And to keep them eating and drinking, pain relief is paramount. It's kind of a domino effect. If you're not having pain relief, you're not eating and drinking, um, things get more painful, they get more sore, they get dehydrated. It kind of just keeps going around in like a vicious circle, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Are there other complications that you would tell the families um, in regards to maybe resting or nausea and vomiting and all those kind of things and and bleeding, I think, which is a huge one. Yeah, of course. So I know definitely most of my conversations with families start off talking about pain and pain relief, as well as the importance of eating and drinking. Um, But then I also have a really good conversation about resting um, because it can take a full two weeks for healing to happen after this surgery. Um, And we definitely don't want kids, you know, jumping on trampolines and doing those sorts of things while they're trying to recover. I was just going to ask, what is your definition of resting? Because people will be (laughs) saying, oh, you know, like, does that mean that for two weeks, you know, they're on their iPad or, you know, can they go for gentle walks? So so now we know definitely no jumping on a trampoline. Yeah, we don't want them exerting themselves too much. So a gentle walk is perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. But I definitely don't encourage families to go for a trip to the park or Mm -hmm. riding bikes or you know, those yeah. sorts of things that are really going to exert themselves too much. Yeah, that makes total sense. And they're probably not going to feel like it anyway. Yeah. There's those days, the peak pain where they're just They're going to just be miserable. Get that iPad out, get that movie happening. <laughs> and bleeding is not as common as probably what people would think it is when a child undergoes tonsil adenoidectomy, but it can be really scary. And I guess I want to ask you, Beck, can you take us why bleeding is really concerning for families and what do you tell families to do and when does it happen? Yeah, I think it's, again, about being realistic about post-op recovery and that bleeding can happen and it can happen up to two weeks after the surgery. I know recently had someone at day 16 even. Wow. That's super rare, yeah. but it can happen up to two weeks after the surgery. And that's why number one thing we say two weeks off school, because we don't want them, you know, spitting in the back corner of the playground and not telling anyone. And then all of a sudden they collapse because, you know. They've had a big bleed. Yeah, correct. Um, But things that we tell families to look for are blood in the corners of the mouth. If they have a vomit or, you know, spit up anything, have a look at it. Is there any fresh blood in it? Sometimes they might have a little streaking in the first few days. That's okay. But if they wake up and there's blood on their pillow and things like that. Also persistent swallowing because they might be trying to clear something. So they might have blood trickling down the back of their throat. These are the things that I would say to the families, have a look in the back of your child's throat. Yeah. Yeah. And see if they can see anything. Can they see any active bleeding? Can they see any blood clots? Things like that. It's also really important to tell them when they are looking in the back of the throat, it's going to be white and patchy. Mm -hmm. That's completely normal. It's not that it's infected or infection. It's just the scabs healing. It looks disgusting. It's completely normal. 
In terms of bleeding, though, um, when is the peak, actually, can I just interrupt you there and ask you when is the peak time or when is the most common incidence of bleeding when you've got... Yeah, so we've been tracking over the last probably six months and we've seen a peak in day seven. Right. Um, I'm not sure what other studies are showing, but that's something that we've noticed. So day seven seems to be quite a common occurrence. And do you know the rates of bleeding? Like what are the rates of a post-op child? They do fluctuate a bit, um, but generally we sit around the 5% mark um, of readmissions for bleeding. Right. Yeah. So still not a huge amount, but significant enough. It's it's important to still tell the families. And I think if the child is at home and they're bleeding, call an ambulance. If the families don't feel comfortable in caring for this patient, you know, putting them in the car, bringing them to ED, then call an ambulance. You know, Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of um, controversy about, is it a teaspoon? Is it a cup? Is it half a cup? And how much is significant bleeding? How long's a piece of string? (laughs) You get phone calls about, oh, it's a cup and someone's cup might be a teaspoon. So it is really hard. But I think if, if they've had any bleeding, it's probably best to come back to ED Mm -hmm. just to get checked out. I know other hospitals they might not even re- readmit them. They might just say, watch and wait. Other countries do a lot of different things. I think um, mm-hmm. one of our consultants was saying that they don't really even readmit patients after a bleed and, mm-hmm. you know, that's why our readmission rates might be a little bit higher because maybe we're a bit more conservative. So a bit it's, more cautious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it really varies then. Correct. Yeah, but educating families oh, on huge. bleeding is super, super important. Now, what resources do you give families, um, Claire, in regards to managing their child at home? And I know that in our previous podcast, you know, Bex kind of touched on that pain medication chart, which I think is amazing. Yeah. So that's one of the most important things that we give to all families, the Safer Care Victoria pain medication chart. I just think it's such a fantastic thing to give Mm -hmm. to families so that they can have a visual representation of what time they're giving pain relief I don't know about you guys, but it is super tricky keeping track of three different sorts of medications. And what other, what medications typically would our patients here at RCH go home with? Yeah. So normally um, they'll go home on regular Panadol Mm -hmm. and then they'll go home on a non-steroidal medication. So that will either be ibuprofen or Mm -hmm. celecoxib. Mm -hmm. um, And that's generally dependent on the doctor that orders that. Um, But it's always one or the other. Right. For a stronger breakthrough pain relief, we uh, usually prescribe oxycodone. Yeah. And would you prescribe oxycodone even to the children with obstructive sleep apnea? Yes. Yeah. Normally, yes. Uh, Sometimes depending on the child, Mm -hmm. they can be a little bit more cautious and order a lower dose just to see what they're like with it beforehand. Um, But yeah, usually they still will have some oxycodone. Oh, fantastic. And then what are the resources that you would give families? Yeah. So we also give them the discharge care, post-tonsil and adenoidectomy, kids' health info is a really good structured guide on what to expect while they're recovering from surgery. We've also just had that translated into five different languages. Oh, amazing. I love that. <laughs> Looking after our, our culturally linguistic diverse families. I think yeah. it's so important. Yep. So Much that will be needed. available on our internet um, in the coming weeks. Yeah, fantastic. And just for our listeners, the Kids Health Info Fact Sheets are available to everybody and they can be easily downloaded from the RCH website. Um, And we also uh, give out some medication fact sheets, uh, particularly when we're prescribing something like celecoxib because it's an unfamiliar, I guess, medication for families. Yeah. You know, it just seems like providing 
really good, thorough post-operative education really does lead to better outcomes, but you have to kind of invest the time, don't you? Like if you're the nurse looking after them in day centre, if they're going home that day or on the ward, you really got to take your time and actually just explain things to the families. Or perhaps if you're in our regional and rural communities, if you're the clinician, the, the surgeon looking after them, you know, it's, you know, listening to you both, it just, it's really key to give families really robust education. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think we can stress enough how important it is providing education to these families. And generally for me, I know an education session I provide can take up to 20 minutes at yep. least. It's a very thorough conversation mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, the family's expectations are in check and they know what to expect over the next two weeks. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And just empowering them to, I guess, you know, we talked about the burden of all the medications and how great the resource is, but really emphasising that it is that the child will need that pain relief and it is okay for them to give it. Because I know as a parent, I know you guys are both parents too, you know, you're giving your child all these medications and you're thinking, wow, am I going to be doing this for two weeks? It can be quite overwhelming. Oh, huge. It's um, especially when they're otherwise well. Three medications is very overwhelming and over um, very daunting and it can be really mm-hmm. tiresome because the child's tired, you're tired, yeah. they're sore and you've, you know, you look at the clock and you're like, oh, I've got to give this again. And sometimes it's a real battle. So yeah, I think, yeah, again, education, pre-education, setting those expectations that this is going to be hard and this is going to be rough is just so important. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to discuss the new RCH program that we're currently doing um, that you both actually have helped implement, which is our day-stay tonsillectomies and hospital in the home program. Can you talk us through it and what, what, what actually is it? Well, firstly, I have to thank the ENT team and HITH, our Wallaby department yeah, and our virtual care, because they were really paramount in building this criteria and the day-stay tonsillectomies. It's a project with the Department of Health that we've come along as the clinical nurse consultants to help drive this as mm-hmm. well. Um, so we're looking at more day-stays. So last podcast, we talked about how COVID was a huge hit our wait list, mm-hmm. every wait list. Yeah, really it just blew hard. it out of proportion. Yep, crazy. Yeah, blew it out of, yeah. So we're trying to um, speed things along. And one of the ways that we're, um, the teams have come together and try to improve that is by doing more day cases. So they've come together and created a criteria of four years or older. Their children have to live within 60 kilometres of RCH, mm-hmm. have no other comorbidities that will likely to affect recovery. And they have to have a pre-op overnight oximetry, which is either normal or inconclusive, um, that's stable. And parents um, will need to be able to drive or have phone contact if there was anything happening because they're going home after the day of surgery. And also a really big one is that they're consenting to HITH because not all families are going to feel comfortable going home that day. So that's a huge one. If they have any anxieties, and you can hear them straight Mm -hmm. away when we're having these phone calls, conversations. It's okay. If they do not feel comfortable, we need to make sure that they're supported in the best way. And can I just ask, do you have kind of like a number of how many children have been fast-tracked through this program? Yeah. So we've hit over 60 now, wow, Claire's at 65 or even more maybe. I think it's more than that. Yeah. yeah since yeah. Um, we went live um, in late October with virtual care, we've um, used the RCH my RCH portal. My RCH portal. Yeah. We use that to do a symptom tracker, much like when you had COVID. Yeah. You and you put in your symptoms if Correct. you had a headache or a fever. Yeah. Or, yeah. 
On days one, three, five, seven, and nine, we send out a symptom tracker questionnaire asking about how's their pain going, how many times they're having their analgesia, is there any bleeding, uh, wheeze and poos, and yeah. how they're eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. And it really makes the families reflect on how their recovery is going. And also because we're asking it quite frequently, they can they might be able to see an improvement and go, actually, today's not as bad as yesterday. Mm-hmm. We're getting there. And then they're able to ask a question and that ENT team can give them a call back and try to help troubleshoot things. And I suppose we're trying to re- reduce readmissions, but also support these families in their recovery because yeah. we know how tough it is. Now, this was going to be rolled out to only day cases, but we're mm-hmm. like, hey, why are we giving a lot of support for these day cases? Because these are essentially our healthiest population. Yeah, they've got the least kind of comorbidities. Yeah. And they don't have too many desaturations or otherwise kind of fit and healthy. Yeah. So we rolled this yeah. out to our overnight cases Amazing. as well. Amazing. And families are feeding back that it's been really helpful and really useful. And we do do a lot of phone calls with these families and it might be just like, hey, I saw you only gave two doses of Panadol. Let's increase that. Are they complaining of pain at night? Let's give them an extra dose of oxycodone at night. Mm-hmm. G- get them to drink some water because drying out over yeah. um, the wound overnight can be quite painful. So it's just that troubleshooting. Yeah, absolutely. And it, that would definitely be so beneficial for these families. They're really enjoying it from what we've heard and we are following up, making sure that the evaluation program is in, in place. Beautiful. Um, I'm absolutely loving all the work that you both are doing in the ENT department. I think it's so crucial to providing really excellent care, not just to children, I guess, here at RCH, but also sharing this knowledge with other clinicians across the state. Um, And, you know, we've got listeners from everywhere as well about how they can implement some of, I guess, the strategies. And I know that we're really blessed in in regards to the, you know, the resource and the the, the people that we have here, but there's no stopping clinicians from external um, sites using what we've got or using our models of care and implementing them in, you know, in their centres in a supported manner. Yeah. And what we do with our day cases is that they have the day of surgery. Mm -hmm. They go home after a minimum of four hours, but they go home with an overnight oximetry. Hith um, then come see them the following day. Go So hospital in the home. Yeah, Yeah. sorry. They will come and see them the next day in their home and go over education and they'll take back that overnight oximetry back to the children to download the report. Our ENT team then look at the report and make sure it's all okay. And then hospital in the home will have a day two telehealth with them and just make sure that they're feeling safe and, you know, um, empowered to look after the children going forward and then they can discharge them from their care. But I think what's really important that we've had a lot of emails from different facilities about what's our criteria, what's our guidelines, and we're happy to share that, that knowledge. But I think it's really important to for those clinicians to look at what resources do they have in their own hospital yeah, absolutely, and what do they feel comfortable being their criteria because mm-hmm. their surgeons might not agree to four years um, and above. They might yeah. want to increase that to, I don't know, six or... Yeah, and some centres don't have an urgent care or an and ED associated to it. And they don't have So yeah. what criteria um, suit that facility and what resources, the resources do they, they have, have available? Correct. That so makes they can't, so much sense. They can't replicate it, but they can tweak it to how Correct. their clinicians... They can adapt it and use yeah. it yeah, and also get ideas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Absolutely. Um, Well, again, learning so much from you both today. And as we wrap up, I just wanted to finish asking you both, um, what would you encourage, you know, nurses and other clinicians to discuss for for these children that are being discharged after tonsil adenoidectomy? 
though, to be honest. Um, I think the first thing we really want um, nurses to be discussing is how tough the process, yeah. the recovery is. We just want them to be really honest with families because I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a room after after surgery and the parents like, this is fantastic. Look how much they're eating. Yeah. Everything's and, going great at that moment. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> unfortunately, one of the first things I'll say is let's take advantage of that yeah. right now yeah. um, because it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah. Before hydrate them. Better. Hydrate them. Hydrate yes. them. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. I guess discussing what the normal recovery is mm -hmm. um, because as we've mentioned, pain usually gets worse before it gets better. Yeah. It can peak at different times for children, mm -hmm. but I guess most children we see kind of between day four to seven or eight even yeah. um, is when they really kind of hit their peak before they start getting yeah, better. And those four days of pain, you know, four days of, you know, uncomfortable, unhappy children, yeah. stressed out families. So it's significant. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for those take-home messages, um, Claire. They were fantastic. And before we wrap up, I just want to um, invite clinicians to the up-and-coming study day that we're facilitating with the Education Hub and the ENT department. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so on the 11th of August, it's held here at the Royal Children's, but you can also buy tickets virtually. So it's open to nurses, GPs, medical staff, allied health, anyone who has an interest in ENT, in particular the tonsils and adenoids, to attend. And we're having expert panels talking about pre-information, post-information, medications. Uh, we've got anaesthetists coming. Uh, who else have we got coming? Uh, we've got um, the ward nurses, recovery nurses. So really taking us through the journey from start to finish. Yeah, and we're also having our hospital and the home team come and talk about the day procedure. So yeah. that might spark some interest about how um, other hospitals and facilities can implement something similar to help their wait lists. Yeah, absolutely. And tickets are available through Eventbrite, but contact the Education Hub if you want more details. Well, amazing, guys. Thank you so much for today. Thanks, Thanks for Tan. having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.